0: This podcast is brought to you by MedTech Innovation News, the publication for professionals working in the UK and Ireland's medical device industry. Subscribe now at medtechnews.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of the MedTalk Podcast, discussing the latest news and issues in life sciences. I'm Ian Bolland, Editor of MedTech Innovation News, and I am joined by Giles Sanders and Steve Gowers from TTP. TTP is an independent technology company where scientists, engineers and designers collaborate to invent and develop new products and technologies. On this episode we discuss the company's relationship with multiple stakeholders provenance of certain technologies and life sciences, as well as what the future will hold for MedTech as we emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic. First of all, thank you folks for coming on. I uh, appreciate your time. Um, obviously, TTPs worked in, you work across a lot of projects, but I was wondering if you could actually take us back to the first lockdown in a way, because given that you work in so many different areas, can you tell us about the degree of change that happened overnight?
1: Ian, uh, it's great to talk to you today. Um, just brief backgrounds: um, we're TTP, company of 300 scientists and engineers working with companies around the world in deep technology, healthcare, life science and diagnostics. I'm Giles, I look after diagnostics.
2: I'm Steve, my background's in human-centred design and I look after drug delivery and digital health solutions here at TTP. Yeah.
1: And if we kind of step back and look over both the last 12 months, I mean, things have changed. I mean, we've made ourselves very COVID safe, but as a company, we've always been working on the horizon of what's been possible on the one to three-year products for our clients around the world. What happened 12 months ago is actually a compression of that. We've seen, obviously, a continuation of programs working in the working, delivering general systems for our clients, but we've also seen an incredible acceleration of certain programs where we, yeah, 12 months ago, we delivered something which used to take three years in one month. We have done a number of programs over the year where we have really been agile, accelerated to actually deliver multiple things for clients in record time for us within months rather than years. And if we take a yeah, particular example, our client's DNA nudge, um, we developed for them a system for consumer genomics, being able to do PCR tests actually in their shop in Covent Garden, which would then nudge people to make food decisions. This time last year, um, their CEO came and actually said, "We've this technology can answer the covid problem as well and he was right and we'd had the same thought and we rapidly helped them translate that product from what was a consumer product to something you could use in for covid so we helped develop rapidly changed bits of the consumable so we put in methods of containing the sample to make sure obviously if it was somebody with covid positive didn't go out introduced new biology so we could look at rna rather than dna and then supported them over a period of last summer really doing scale up of cart prototype cartridge developments and helping them scale and transfer to major manufacturers so that they were ready when they got the lancets yeah they got the publication lancet saying how valuable it was and then obviously a order from the NHS and we help them throughout that process getting ready and there have been many other examples and I think in the space of digital health we've certainly seen quite a lot of changes over the last year which I think Steve can talk about.
2: Yeah I mean on that topic it, it wasn't overnight but I think through the course of the pandemic um, we've also seen that digital health has, has come to the fore you know healthcare systems had to embrace new ways of working and as a result projects we've been working on for some time now um, to help monitor patients or engage and support people in their own homes these have suddenly become an even more important and relevant aspect of, of healthcare so clinical trials have had to be conducted remotely care has had to be delivered through telehealth technologies and unsurprisingly the projects we've been working on in those areas we've seen a rapid acceleration and prioritization of those. Um, And another aspect, I guess, as we start to think about the longer term implications or learnings from COVID is that, whether it's obesity as a risk factor or the increased prevalence of of mental health conditions coming out of uh, this period, um, there are things like digital therapeutics that are rapidly expanding. it's an area we, we have been involved with, and you see both through startups and, and pharma and biotech companies investments, it being a, a massively expanding area. Um, we've been working with the NHS on a digital therapeutic called M um, for some time for the treatment of personality disorders. Um, and that kind of took a bit of a backseat as people tackled the emergency of, of, of COVID and, and the pandemic. But... We 've seen recently that really regain momentum um, and interest because people are aware of what, what's coming uh, and in Western society you know, over 12 percent of the population meet the criteria for personality disorder uh, in the UK that's five million people uh, and it's a, a huge cost not only to the healthcare system but to the people suffering from these conditions uh, it can impact kind of life expectancy decreasing it by 10 to 15 years and it's treatable um, so the limiting factor is often access to skilled therapists and, and we see digital therapeutics and, and m as an example of that as, as a way of scaling these treatments so that we can treat more people which is going to be massively important as we look to the future
0: it's interesting that you actually in in both both your answers there you've actually covered um you know both of the growth markets as well as um, You've ident- identified certain technologies that were already there, certain technologies that have been repurposed, and then there is this preparation for what comes next, because the consequences of the emergency that we had starting 12 months ago it, it could be long lasting. And as a result, um, which, which projects? I mean, you probably mentioned them already, but which projects in particular are you ident- identifying as you know? the key ones that you're going to be working on or are going to be important for uh, the wider public going forward.
1: And I think you've just touched on it, Ian. I think COVID has been a time of maximum disruption throughout the world. And, yeah, there's been an acceleration of the ongoing, but there are going to be some real, I think you, what you talk about growth areas are kind of areas of positive change in healthcare, which are actually going to stick. Things we have been talking about for 30 years, points of care devices are you know, actually going to stick. Telemedicine in the last months has seen adoption in the US go up from 10% to 50%. And I think this is definitely going to stick. I mean, I think talking from diagnostics, I'll let Steve talk about uh, telemedicine in a minute. I think the public appreciation of diagnostics has changed immeasurably over the last year you know, 12 months ago if I mentioned PCR to somebody they wouldn't even know have any idea what we're talking about even the lateral flow test people wouldn't realize I, their pregnancy test is such a technology so there's been an increased public awareness of the value of the of diagnostics but also an awareness that yeah, diagnostics can actually be a first line of defence, be this against COVID, but also be this against any other future disease. So I think we will see a continuation of distribution of diagnostics and continuation of this diagnostics as defence. So we will see a continuum of from the centralised facilities to the, com- the community, so the pharmacists, the the practice, yeah, the doctor's practices, to the consumer, we're already seeing this in a way, people doing PCR tests before flights, and to schools, defending, yeah, schools, healthcare environments, um, defending people from diseases, and for TTP, some of the programs we're doing are very much about delivering that next stage of diagnostics, so our spin-out legs, our developing um, basically super-fast PCR, a way of doing a PCR reaction in five minutes, so you can get a result telling you if you've got flu in five minutes, designed for use by a consumer in a consumer environment. So so quick swap, sample in, get a result in five minutes, being able to do something about it. Similarly, in TTP, we've developed a technology called co tests which is about taking about how you can distribute and keep costs down so taking say 30 to 50 samples in this case saliva samples and actually delivering a result as good as if we just did one single sample and these sort of things are core programs within TTP and I think we will see more examples of these from other obviously other diagnostic companies around the world over the next 12 months. And clearly in telemedicine, there is going to be some huge changes.
2: Yeah. I mean, on the, on the diagnostics front, Charles, I, I mean, I have children and we do the, the lateral flow tests and trying to get them to do a nasal swab is is just horrendous. Yes. Um, so you think about the benefits of you know, a saliva sponge, yeah. almost going into a massive pooled screening technology. That's massive.
1: Yeah, I mean when we when we considered co-test and thought about what we would do with it, it was very much thinking about long-term testing. You're not going to have people wanting to do a nasal swab on a regular basis and saliva has been shown in a lot of trials which are very good a good matrix so long as you process it well.
0: Yeah. It's interesting you've you've mentioned not, that about I'm about your um, children with diagnostics because uh, I think I think it goes for for adults too. They don't like um, sticking a nasal swab, or they, they don't like putting a swab God, in tongue. I, mean, I, mean, I, I I did I did it I did it yesterday, and you just you just gag, and it's horrible. So I mean, there is obviously a um, a comfort aspect here that you consider going forward. Absolutely, yeah. comfort,
2: but I mean, think about the efficiency. Yeah, I mean, thirty to fifty samples almost in one test um, as a way of screening a classroom. That that's huge. It's it's game changing. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are other technologies, as as Giles mentioned. So, I, I think people have been talking about wearables for, for for many years, right? But what what's interesting is that we've seen recent studies by Mount Sinai, so a healthcare provider in the U.S and Stanford, uh, both indicating that heart rate variability as monitored by some of these consumer grade wearable technologies can actually detect kind of COVID. So heart rate variability changes as inflammation kind of develops in the body and and COVID is is very inflammatory. So it's kind of understandable that these technologies that are monitoring heart rate variability could detect COVID. Um companies like Apple are now funding large-scale respiratory studies to, to investigate this as a, a possibility moving forward, and that, that's going to play a massive role, um, not just for COVID, but the future of healthcare and work that we're doing in this space. So we've been collaborating with NHS Scotland and the University of Highlands and Islands to explore the role that monitoring... And machine learning can play in improving treatment for chronic AF patients. So atrial fibrillation is essentially variability in in heartbeats. Um, And there's a number of different treatment options available to patients who suffer from chronic AF. Um, Electrocardioversion is one of them. So you can shock a patient back into normal rhythm, but success rates are only at 60%. So 40% of patients revert back to chronic AF. Uh, and what we're doing, we're gathering ECG data um, before for a period and immediately just before the procedure and then afterwards for a period of time and, and starting to look at whether machine learning as a tool can help us identify patterns that could indicate potential outcomes. So if you could detect Whether the procedure's gone well and and whether a a patient's likely to revert or not, you might change the course of their care pathway. Uh, Even better, if you could predict, you you, you might push them down a more effective care pathway. So the role of kind of monitoring and data and machine learning, you know, everyone talks about it, but there are some real tangible examples coming out of COVID that are going to be more broadly applicable. Um, And of course, that's monitoring in the hospital, but the next step's going to be pushing that into the home and you're going to have a year long data set that could really well inform your, 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 your treatment decisions. I, think- I know you had the guys from Zio um, on, on your show a few months ago mm-hmm. talking about the wearable patch, but I mean, those types of technologies have got a huge role to play and how we interpret the data and, and make treatment decisions for, for patients. Yeah. I
1: would agree The kind of the post COVID future will be a continuum of of diagnostics from the relatively dumb continual monitoring but with some huge kind of machine intelligence behind it to you know, new bespoke technologies doing identifying particular diseases mm-hmm. very quickly as well as what we currently have which are central labs doing excellent jobs of turnaround and exploring a whole broad range of potential diseases in some
0: yeah, uh, Steve, you actually mentioned before about uh, the saliva testing being a game changer if you could have, you know, 30 kids just doing a simple saliva sample rather than any kind of swabbing. Uh, there has been a lot of talk about testing, but is that the kind of testing that you envisage will be needed to be adopted on a, on a wider scale for normality to resume as as we once knew?
1: I mean, I'll jump in here and that's okay. I mean, I think, I think we'd all love the need for testing on a regular basis to go away i fear that it won't i now think we will need to be aware for a long time of both covid and other diseases we are you know, vaccine effectiveness and vaccine rollout effectiveness is certainly we're doing very well in the uk but uncertain elsewhere so I think we will need to maintain a level of continual testing as we move forward. Two things I think will be key. One is reduction of cost, yeah, keeping those prices down. But you know, for last year, governments around the world have been paying for a lot of tests at you know, potentially quite high cost rates. And those are either going to those tests are going to have to come down in costs and potentially be transferred to the end user, which we've already seen in things like people going on flights. I think the other one is going to be decentralisation. So a lot of tests will have to be taken at a point where the result can instantly provide an action, where you can actually change what people are doing then and there, being able to. If, for example, as we talk about a cohort testing system which looks at a group of people and there is a positive test, then you can actually, one, possibly do lots of single tests to work out exactly who it is, but also isolate that group immediately until you know an answer, which can stop the spread of disease. So I think that's where I see the future, and I also think... We will think more about, we'll be more prepared for other diseases in this way. And we're lucky in a way with COVID, it's a relatively slow mutating disease. There are other viruses which mutate quicker. So the need won't go away, but the need will become less urgent as we move forward. And I think more generally, I mean, the decentralization, we are thinking very much about the future. How that can be a first line of defense. So thinking about obviously ease of use going back to saliva testing, the speed. But also things like connectivity. So we're, you know, when we're thinking about our co-test development, we're actually working with both ARM and a small software company called L2S2 thinking about connectivity itself and doing epi- yeah, distributed epidemiology. So we actually have a dashboard telling you what is actually occurring throughout any location where code tests may be, for example. And I think, dropping back to what I've already said, this distributed healthcare, diagnostics, digital health, that continuum will become increasingly important in the future as a, defense against not only COVID, but any future diseases.
2: Well, one one thing I, I, I might throw in, Charles it's got me thinking, really. Your question was about saliva testing making it easier or more attractive for, for people to do. I think testing is inevitably going to be m- more a part of our lives moving forward. I think the challenge is going to be how do you get people to conduct those tests as well. Um, Part of it's about making sure you do it at the right time so it can actually change what you do. um, I mean, at home, I've got, well, as many have, you know, 15 lateral flow tests sitting in the cupboard. And when do you choose to take one of those? How do you take control of of your decisions, your your health care? And how do you positively influence people's behavior to do that? Um, So behavior is is, is a massive part of of healthcare, but it's going to be interesting to think about that in the context of testing moving Mm -hmm. forward. Um, I guess part of it is to fit into your lifestyle. So with the pooled screening, you could make sure during the register on a Monday morning at primary school, it's done. Um, I guess it's imposing it on, on a natural kind of flow but are there other ways to get people to engage with these types of technologies and and embrace them into their everyday lives
0: yeah yeah i think uh, you actually raised an interesting point there because i think whenever if anyone's got um, a home test kit you know for race and they're asymptomatic they they haven't got symptoms of covid it's a case of when do you take that test and i'm of the i'm of the opinion now that i would you know uh, I would take a test shortly before, it, or if I'm planning to, you know, go out and meet somebody. Obviously within the guidelines, but you know, it's a case of, you know, it's not just a case of protecting yourself; it's protecting the others, others as well. It, it, it feels like the, the, there needs to be a little bit of guidance fleshed out as to. As and when people should should be taking tests, it's all well and good having you know the option to take like other flow tests at home. But at the moment, it, it seems to be a case of um, it, it has been left to the individual as to when they should test themselves.
2: Yeah, I, I think you make a good point, Ian. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, COVID is our live lives at the moment, right? And it's quite easy. I guess to think about when you might self-test to go into a certain situation um, because you're aware of the harm that you could potentially do to yourself and others. I think as we look forward and like Giles has said, testing or, or telehealth or monitoring is going to become a bigger part of what we do. It's for other conditions where it's perhaps less obvious what what the importance or significance of the test might be to that particular person. But, yeah, we still want them to do that test and kind of take more control of their own health. And uh, th- those are going to be the challenging situations. And, I mean, technology has a role to play, um, but understanding the different stakeholders in the system, uh, kind of how we interact with them and, and drive behavior in, in the right way is, is going to be a, an interesting
0: challenge. So we've, we've, uh, we've spoken briefly about telemedicine and you know, and without patient monitoring almost. And it's a case of, I think people prior to the pandemic were sceptical that they would get the same kind of service. But do you think that people's concerns have now been overcome as a result of this you know, enforced change? I think yes and no is my answer to that.
2: <laughs> um, I think people have embraced a lot of the technologies that are available today. Um, so, I mean, Charles quoted some figures earlier. I think the adoption of telehealth in, in, in the UK and, and the US has, has has accelerated rapidly. So people are using communications technologies to you know, conduct GP assessments. Um, I think people recognize that there are also limitations to those technologies. So where we sit today, um, monitoring isn't quite yet fully integrated into the healthcare system at home. Um, So when you have a GP appointment, they can't always make the assessments or judgments that they want to because the data isn't available today. Now, so people are a little bit skeptical, I think, still about the full adoption of telehealth, Um, but I have no doubt that that's gonna change in the future. Um, We'll always have a hybrid model, so I think there'll always be a certain amount of in-person interaction and and procedures needed, Um, but I think the technology is already there to enable remote monitoring of people in their home, but the challenge is really how do you scale those technologies, particularly coming out of COVID. We've realised they work, um, but how do you get them in the hands of everyone, and then how do you make sure that data that is being generated by those devices connects into a broader ecosystem, and who owns that data, you know, and who, who manages that data with all the, the challenges but the opportunities that come with it. I think that those are the, the challenges that people are grappling with. And we're going to see more focus on those challenges of scaling telehealth technologies over the coming few years. Um, and at that point, I think you, you are going to see true impacts of, of telehealth on, on, on healthcare.
0: it's fascinating so far that we've actually covered technologies that have you know that have been there um i I think we might end up coming back to testing here because it's your your portfolio in particular suggests that a lot of knowledge around testing was repurposed for covid but i'm just wondering what what have you managed to learn from covid that could be used for conditions and procedures that we were probably accustomed to pre-pandemic or indeed the next big thing that comes down the line off of it.
1: I mean, as a company, I mean, we, yeah we have kind of 30 years of experience of working in, you know, fast developments for clients. And I think what we have learned from COVID is, you know, the pragmatism we bring helps things be repurposed very quickly. The, the kind of future insight we have in terms of thinking about what people may need in you know, one, three, five years has enabled us to be agile, quick, and think and deliver. But interestingly, I in the world of diagnostics is a relatively conservative world. We've seen some major Repurposing this year, we've seen some interesting things going on in terms of new platforms coming to the market very quickly, basically for a drop, a drop of the regulatory hurdle in the last 12 months. The EUA, both in the US, UK and Europe has enabled new players to get a level of adoption very quickly. But if you actually stop and look at what those technologies are, most of them have been pre-existing science and often pre-existing diagnostics just being rapidly, rapidly taken to the market, a process which would have taken three years of clinical trials being adopted in three months. So in that case, I don't think we're what's the difference so in that case kind of difference with future and what we're going to learn from covid is going to be very much more about speed of development and the ability to deliver some of the things which were already happening in markets apart from covid so we'll look at flu testing in the future will quite possibly be a nice single use PCR device, which can be used certainly in a pharmacy or a a doctor's clinic, rather than a complex 1,000, 2,000 pounds PCR engine, which only will exist either in a central lab or if you're lucky in an A&E department. So I think those things will certainly happen. And conversely, people's expectations of how quickly they get a test result is probably gonna be a major driver as we look to the future. So people are now expect a test result at the very slowest as quickly as a lighthouse lab has been doing a COVID test. And at the very quickest, within 20 minutes of the lateral flow test provides. So I think consumer expectations in all diagnostics will be increased in terms of the expectation that they will have some control of it. They will see some of the results and the results will come quickly, which, again, will drive this continual, I think, distribution and increased complexity of testing going into the community. Hmm.
0: It's fascinating that you mentioned that. It feels like the the, um, the consumer expectation has almost reshaped the market in a way. I think
1: it does. I, mean, I think if we go back 12 months, most consumers probably didn't know what a... Di- yeah, a lot of people didn't know what a diagnostic was. As I said earlier, yeah, you know, people certainly didn't know the difference between a molecular test and an immunoassay or a lateral flow test. And most people, yeah, certainly of kind of standard age and wellness, most of their experience of a diagnostic is probably at most somebody taking a blood test and sending it off to the hospital and not actually getting any results. The last year has actually seen diagnostics in the hand of a consumer. And at that point, consumer expectations start to kick in and the nature of the different stakeholders and what a consumer needs, both in terms of ease of use, simplicity, cost, all start becoming more important and more driving of what a future diagnostic may be like.
0: That's interesting. I mean, um, I'd just like to move on to um, the the work that you do with other companies, for example, because I think a lot has come across my desk over the past year of startups, in particular, is that there seems to be more and more new ideas coming to the fore. As one positive of this pandemic been the emergence of new startups and ideas that you've experienced? I mean, have you seen bigger companies from other industries try to enter this space or is it predominantly, you know, young, you know, young people or young organizations that are just, you know, raring to go with this idea?
2: I think, I mean, like you say, Ian, um, what we've seen really through this crisis is that opportunity has, has, has come out and without doubt. One positive thing to result from this pandemic is that the UK scientific and, and technology community has continued to, to innovate throughout. Um, a nice example that, that I might give actually of a, a small company um, that we've been working with. So there's a client of ours, Hyprosan, who are actually a small company based in Wales, and, and they had a quite an innovative biocide um, formulation. And, and really embraced this as an opportunity. So not only did they develop a supply chain to sell their liquid biocide into the NHS or, or direct to consumers as an antiviral kind of um, liquid, but they've also been working with us to help develop that into a non-woven material that could be built into face masks, to PPE, personal protective equipment. So that's that's great. I mean, it's an opportunity for a small company, very innovative, to, to use this as a springboard really to develop a technology for, for COVID. And the interesting thing there is that that technology now has broader applicability. So you think about a biocidal infused material, that's not just useful for a face mask, that's useful for treatment of wounds in, in wound care, You know, trying to prevent infections. That has broader applicability. I think we've seen small companies and large companies use this as an opportunity to, to innovate to rapidly innovate. But then we're gonna see these innovations be more broadly applicable across other scenarios in healthcare, which, which is interesting. Um, and we've seen funding uh, accelerate. I, Giles might have some thoughts on funding in, in testing and diagnostics. Absolutely, I mean,
1: I, I think I mean, it's been a year of astounding innovation, actually also astounding, astounding repurposing, where you know, science, government funding, venture funding have all been focused on actually doing the right thing which is yeah being able to use diagnostics and healthcare to get us out of this problem and if i stop and look at uh, look at who we've spoken to over the last year in terms of flavor of people i think a huge amount of innovation in universities startups yeah us uk singapore india china have all spoken to me in the last year driven by obviously i want to do something very good some great governmental um funding things the Radex in the us was a really great thing in terms of accelerating some existing startups and small companies to kind of accelerate their development and focus their development uh, similarly, the COVID X Prize, where both DNA and Nudge were a finalist and a couple of other people I've spoken to were on engaged, that actually focused and drove certain things. We definitely, I mean, surprisingly, looking back, I mean, 12 months ago, we all thought VC funding might dry up immediately. It's continued, if not accelerated. And certainly in the world of diagnostics, is going to accelerate, continue to accelerate, in my view. We've seen major companies have taken the time to see where the gaps in their portfolio exist. And we've seen the last few months some um, kind of large exits of diagnostic companies, Thermo Fisher buying Mesa Diagnostics, Genmark being bought by Roche, Luminex being bought by Dinosaur, and these are late stage exits of yeah from a few hundred million to several billion and these clear exits then drive the kind of virtuous circle of greater funding in the future and I think if nothing else we're going to see this innovation from universities to small companies to major multinationals accelerated by COVID not slowed down by COVID in this kind of as we look to the future.
2: I think um, an an interesting number for you, Ian. Um, So the the first quarter this year in 2021 was I think the most funded quarter to date for digital health startups. So um, I mean, that's like 7 billion in the US alone. And a lot of these startups, the technologies that pre-existed before COVID, uh, but suddenly they are even more relevant and we're seeing them rapidly accelerated, as, as we've already talked about. But the challenge, I mean, i will come back to one of the main challenges, and that's how do we scale and integrate these technologies into healthcare systems and people's everyday lives?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the But it hasn't just been multinational companies that you've worked with. I mean, you've worked with uh, or, or startups and, and small businesses. You've, you've worked with government, obviously, on the, on the ventures. Challenge previously, but uh, in terms of mm-hmm. you know, um, you've got given that you've worked with such a you know a vast array of companies in terms of size, in terms of ideas, and indeed an institution like like the government. What lessons do you think can be learnt going forward from the past year or so? I mean, this could be in terms of relationships with the industry, or between industry and government, or supply chains. I'm leaving this pretty open to you, but it it, it's, it seems like as well as this being a massive growth period for for the industry, it is a, an opportunity to refine and learn lessons and iron out any kind of creases, if there are any.
1: Yes. I mean, I think one of the greatest lessons we can learn from the last year is actually collaboration. I think collaboration from all the stakeholders and a collaboration early on. So thinking about the stakeholders all the way down to the end users, to the supply chain, and obviously the teams developing technologies, having collaboration and multidisciplinary integration, I think is key to future success. So just take an example of a diagnostic, you know, stakeholders maybe, be you know, the NHS who purchased the technology the, obviously, the company who are trying to benefit from the sale of their technology. But the things which are going to drive that are you going to be your users. That's going to be the hospital, you know, the space it may take up in the hospital, how easy it is for a nurse to use that diagnostic, but also the patient, how easy it is the feeling for the patient. And then when we talk about scaling, it's the supply chain we know this from the world of vaccines actually nobody had heard of a minus 80 freezer a year ago either but actually the importance of creating something where the supply chain is simple easy to use and ideally doesn't need a minus 80 freezer is important so appreciating the yeah you know, the biology the processes involved the plastics the electronics and be able to deliver a scalable supply is going to be increasingly important and dropping down to the developments that needs collaboration between teams and collaboration between quite often very different bits of science. Yeah. You've got the biology, the chemistry, the physicists who often don't talk the same language and then the engineers who have a very different language. And we, yeah, in our 30 years, we've been honing that collaboration and getting everyone speaking a very similar language. And as we kind of go back to designing to address those stakeholders and users I mentioned earlier, key factors also come into human factors, communications, algorithm developments, application use, apps, and user interface development. So it's all that holistic collaboration from developments, which has to think about the end users from the word go to supply chain, which enables something to be delivered, to who purchases it and obviously the people who sell it all need to actually collaborate for a successful development and for a successful product. And I think this is absolutely key in healthcare as we look forward and a lesson hopefully governments, companies and healthcare providers all learn. Yeah, one other point
2: just to... To chip in Ian on that. Um, I mean Giles mentioned human factors, my, my personal backgrounds in, in human factors and human-centered design so I spend less of my time in the lab uh, and a lot more of my time out in the field observing or, or interviewing the people that are going to be using the technologies we're we're developing and we've, we've always incorporated the, the views um, or learnings from, from different stakeholders into technology and product development um, we were lucky enough to to have developed a a clinician's network as we went into the ventilator challenge um, so we could leverage kind of expert input and relationships with hospitals to develop these new technologies rapidly. Um, But a challenge that we've faced over the last year, as have many other companies, is in a world where suddenly everything's locked down and you can't go out and talk to someone or observe someone, how do you still get that level of input into a medical device development from different stakeholders? And I mean, we've had to embrace kind of remote interviewing techniques and using simulations through online tools to test user interfaces. Um, But equally, you know, we've, we've been running studies where we've been posting or shipping prototypes to people's homes for them to interact with. And we've had them set up webcams in their homes so that we can talk them through that or observe them going through that process. So very creative ways of of making sure that we get the right levels of input and collaboration that are going to stick. You know, suddenly it seems a bit ridiculous that we need to travel to all parts of the world to get input from different stakeholders when we can collaborate remotely, of course, there's always going to be a place for, for meeting and observing people in person. But um, I think we've seen an acceleration of these types of techniques and technologies in in a discipline like human factors or human-centred design um, that that are definitely going to stick and have changed how we think about things. Uh,
0: it, it does I'm seem that, nice
1: that the...
0: Yeah, I, I was about to say, it, it does seem that there has been some kind of culture change almost, you know, maybe may, or maybe not so much a change, but uh, an acceleration of new practices, certainly. With, yeah, without doubt. Without um,
1: doubt, and it's interesting listening to what Steve was saying about how he's doing human factors testing, and actually it's analogous to everything else we've been talking about that's... We're moving from a point in the past, for example, in diagnostics, where you just do one test and have an answer, or well-being, where you just take somebody's pulse once to a point where the digital world is enabling us to do far more of a continuum of testing Mm. and actually getting a better insight by having that continuum. I think the challenge will be for all healthcare providers is how that then that digital world then integrates into the current practices.
0: Okay. I mean, you, one final point, because I, I know that uh, we, we've spoken to TTP before. I mean, my magazine has some tech innovation news that, uh, particularly on the ventilator challenge, I'm just wondering if you can bring us up to speed as to what happened with Covent.
2: Yeah, uh, can do, Ian. I think, well, just to, to recap, I mean, TTP was approached by the, the UK government as we've covered on previous episodes, to, to respond to the ventilator challenge. Um, I mean, principally because we, we've we got a lot of experience in developing medical devices. We've, we've got quality management systems and I'm very familiar with regulated product development, but also we can move very quickly to rapidly develop new technologies. So, I mean, it was a, a monumental effort from teams at TTP, um, but also countless Numbers of partners from component suppliers, uh, manufacturing partners, uh, clinicians, as we've touched on, test houses, regulatory consultants, all those people really working together. And we got Covent to the point where um, we had submitted a design history file. Uh, We'd gone through um, essentially approval of that design history file near enough with the MHRA. uh, And we were ready to to scale up manufacture, but thankfully, um, COVID was never actually needed. The the tide had turned, Um, rates of people who had been hospitalized and and admitted into critical care were starting to stabilize and the supply of existing ventilators was beginning to catch up. So uh, in answer to your question, the situation since last September hasn't really changed. Of course, we learned a lot through that process. Um, a lot that is being applied to other programs, but um, you yeah, know, thankfully, covent was was never needed.
1: I'd say yes. I mean, I think the learning from as a company that we could develop a medical device within. Six weeks provide over 5,000 pages of documentation within that time has built a confidence of what we've been doing. Is that our capabilities are such that if somebody comes to us and says, I want to turn this in this approach into a diagnostic and I want to be testing in six months, in some cases we can say yes, and this is actually ongoing at the moment. So I think. It's great that Covent wasn't needed, and it's great that medical practice acted so quickly, but they realized that ventilation wasn't necessarily the only way to go. But speaking as TTP, the confidence it's given us in our ability to react and be agile, collaborate and deliver quickly has been untold. Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, you you said that it's it's no longer needed in the UK, but it, I mean, uh, this is uh, just as a, a layperson and looking at situations throughout the world because the UK is in a, a in a healthier place than, for say, for example, India. I mean, would you be in a position, for example, if there was someone or you know, who represented the Indian government, for example, who saying we, we know that you've developed you know, this this ventilator and we're, we're in need, is it is it would it be a possibility for you know, to work with us on something like that or to, you know, provide uh, provide ne- the necessary needs for us to manufacture it.
2: Yeah, I think that's certainly a possibility, Ian. Um, those aren't discussions we're currently having. Um, I'm not keeping tabs of the, the current kind of ventilator situation in, in areas of the world that are struggling more with the pandemic, but I know kind of care pathways and, and the way patients are being treated for COVID has evolved and changed, um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely a possibility, Ian, and it's something that we could and, and, and should certainly jump on if if the need or, or opportunity presents itself.
1: I think we'd be very open if anybody spoke to us.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, gents, thank you for a wide ranging discussion where we think we've covered basically the entire industry in 50 minutes, which is, you know, saying a lot, in all honesty, <laughs> given, given the amount of things that have happened in the last year. So, uh, thank you very much for your time this morning. Oh, thank you, and yeah, great to see
2: you.